Okay, guys, we are uh, starting something new today. We're starting the book of First Peter. So um, we will get to the text here in a few moments. But, you know, by way of uh, really introduction, not just to the sermon, but to the book, we definitely want to look at a little bit of background. Really to help us give us, uh, give us understanding of the context and, um, you know, why we chose Peter at this time. We've been having these discussions really for the last several months that uh, I think we can all see on the horizon persecution coming to America like, like we've never faced before. We don't know, you know the timetable and all, but uh, we would have to really have our head in the sand to think otherwise. So, you know, so it's one of those deals to where, you know, how do we, uh, you know, where do we go for answers because we've never, something we've never experienced before, right? So... Obviously, we want to go to God's Word. And if we know the context of uh, why First Peter is written, that, that is why we're going to go through this book. Because I think through the, through the Scriptures, uh, you know, obviously through the, the Holy Spirit, we can, we can be at least somewhat prepared. Um, you know, as we see how the, the comfort that we can find during times of persecution, that's really what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. Is just how God can comfort His church. His people, in, no matter what's going on. And you, really it reminds me of, um, you know, just some of the testimonies we heard last night or some of the, uh, you know, I think of um, when, when Josh was talking about the song, It Is Well, you know. So hopefully we can learn some of these principles through God's Word that even if we're facing persecution, that all can be well in our soul because of, because of Christ. But... Uh, yeah, just for the next few moments, guys, I'm just going to give you kind of uh, some, a little bit of background and information that will help us. Um, so this letter was written to Christians under persecution from Rome. Rome was under the reign of Nero. This is probably, probably review for a lot of you, but uh, maybe not all. And so he, was, uh, he became the youngest emperor at the age of 16. He reigned almost 14 years until A.D. 68, where he uh, committed suicide at the age of 30. Um, the early years of his rule uh, weren't really that bad. They were marked by an enhancement of, of the, the cultural life of the Roman Empire. But it didn't end well for Nero. He became, you know, if you read about Nero, he became very cruel, very tyrannical. You know, we, we're hearing that word a lot, right? Tyrants. This man was a tyrant. This man was a psychopath, really, when you, when you look at his life. He murdered anyone who would really uh, get in his way, who he considered a threat, including his stepson, his wife, and his mother. In July of 64 AD, the great fire of Rome that some of you guys may have heard about, you know, when you, when you look at the history in that, in that part of the world, broke out and, and lasted six days. It's been reported that 11, 11 of the 14 districts in Rome were severely damaged. And some historians believe Nero may have been responsible for the fire. It's, it's not, at least through what I read, it's never been confirmed. But many historians thought so. And also many who lived in Rome at the time, they thought Nero was responsible for the fires because he liked to rebuild things. So if you burn it down, you can rebuild it. Um, but, so Nero knew this, that people were blaming him. So he shifted the focus off of himself and blamed who? The Christians. Easy scapegoat for Nero. See, they were already hated for being associated with the Jews. The Christians were. 
And, and they were seen as being hostile to, to the Roman culture. So again, easy way out for, uh, for Nero. And so Nero spread the word that it was the Christians who'd done it. So that's when we really see severe persecution breaking out against the Christians. So that's going to be the context that Peter's writing to these scattered believers. He would even cover Christians with oil, tie them to a stake, and light them on fire uh, for his evening garden parties. You know, when we think we have it bad, when we think we got a crazy dictator, a crazy tyrant, you know, it just helps put things in perspective that, uh, of what Christians has had to go through. And it's, you know, it's, it's the same, <clears throat> you know, it really is the same. You know, that, that's, how I, that's how I interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, obviously there are different ways. As, as far as the beast, you know, the beast of that time, it was Nero, the Roman Empire. But it's the same, it's the same beast, the same antichrist system that comes against Christ today. So there's the same kind of men today, obviously. We see that in other parts of the world. And we see it really rising up in our day. But, but that's that, just that hatred of, of Christ and His people that we see. That He would light them light them for torches. Really see the depravity of man in, in Nero. It's the, uh, so again, that's the context that, that Peter, uh, there's no doubt who wrote this book. Peter wrote this letter probably around 65 A.D. And so, beloved, I think we would all agree, again, I already stated it, but just when we, I want you to have in our minds, you know, the, the, the persecution that these Christians are under, and I think we can all agree that it's coming our way what is it now? Is it, is it four pastors in Canada that have been arrested, I think? Unless there's been more. Guys, this is just right north of us. Just right north of us. From a country who's supposed to have the same kind of freedoms we have. Um, it's coming our way, right? I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with the Equality Act that you've heard, you know, that's you know, maybe going to get passed eventually. Guys, if that thing gets passed, I just want you to know how... how how amped up and how things are going to speed up in that area. Persecution. You know, really to be a faithful Christian and to say what the Bible says is going to be illegal in many ways. It's going to be as simple as somebody coming to me and saying, can you marry George and Steve? And me opening my Bible and saying no. That, you know, could very well be against the law. And uh, that's just how fast these things can come. So we just want to we want to try to prepare the best we can. I think Ronnie mentioned that last week. You know, I mean, we, we haven't been through anything like this. So we just we need to go to the Word of God. We need to go to the Word of God and see how it's nothing new. It's new for us, but it's nothing new down through church history. This is what the church has had to face, these kind of things. And so we, want to, we just want to go and, and, and find our, our comfort, our um, instructions, our strategies from the Word of God. And, and try to work these things out in our own minds. But, but just know this, guys, that this letter was written for them, right, to them, to these, to these readers of Peter, but it's for us as well. Okay, this letter, is, this is the living Word of God, and it's, it's just as true and relevant for us today to comfort us, to comfort the church during persecution. And again, never faced these things before, so I wish I could tell you guys from experience of what to expect, but I can't, right? We can't. We've never been through it. So let's, but we do have the scriptures, which is even more important. That's, that's better. I believe that we can not only survive, but we can, we can thrive during times of persecution. 
Again, that song came to my mind that, that Josh was telling us about, just the history of you know, uh, the man who wrote it, the different you know, characters in the Bible that he talked about, guys. Hey, they're just like us. They're people just like us. Fallen, saved by the grace of God, and we see God's people being... doesn't mean it won't be hard, but being victorious and God using His church, using His people to advance His kingdom. Not only during times of persecution, but I would say especially in the times of persecution. If you look at the early church and church history, many times, I wouldn't say all the time, but many times, that's when God really advances His kingdom, advances the gospel through the times of persecution. So with that being said, guys, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 today. It's really just, verses 1 and 2 is really, it's part of the introduction, I guess you could say. But I do want to let you know that we will pick up the speed a little bit. We're, we're going to do more than two verses normally. Um, but these are very important, very, very important, very foundational. So if you have your Bibles, turn to First uh, Peter chapter 1. We're just reading two verses. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So yeah, the next few minutes just uh, really going to look at just really some of the meanings of the uh, different phrases. I guess you could say exegete of the passage, and then we'll get into uh, we'll get we'll start getting into the uh, more of the exhortation application part of the message. But uh, just some important information. Peter was um, it was the name that Christ gave him. You guys are probably aware of that. His name was Simon. But Jesus gave him the name Peter, Peter in Greek, Cephas in Aramaic, and the word meaning rock, okay? It just means rock. We're going we're gonna to come back to that towards the end, because I think there is an application to that as well. Uh, he was an apostle. You know, the apostle, it, mean, it can mean just a general messenger, right? A, a, or the general meaning can just be messenger. But Peter was one of the twelve. I think we're all aware of that. He was one of the twelve. He was even one of the inner three along with James and John. Um, and so an apostle was a very unique office. Okay, Very unique office for a unique time in the history of the church. Very important to remember that, right? Because there's people running around saying they're apostles today. The office of an apostle had a supreme importance and authority behind it. So no other office... It's kind of interesting to note, no other office, you know, if you think of Ephesians 4, the teachers, prophets, or evangelists, no other office came with that phrase behind it, of Jesus Christ. You didn't see prophet of Jesus Christ, teacher of Jesus Christ, but you see the apostles of Jesus Christ. That's just how they were referred. Um, Apostles had the authority of at least equal to the Old Testament prophets. In other words, they were commissioned to speak and write God's very words. Through their mouths and through their pens, they pronounce, Thus saith the Lord. That's the uniqueness of this office. So these are men who had been with Christ and who had witnessed the resurrected Christ, right? One of the the qualifications of being an apostle. 
And so you think about Saul of Tarsus. I think it's interesting to note that after God saved Saul of Tarsus, that it's a widely known uh, fact that, that he was away with the risen Lord Jesus Christ for three years in Arabia. Isn't that interesting? They were with him three years. He was with him three years. And he, that's where he was taught. That's where he got his gospel. That's where he received his gospel that he, that he talked about in Galatians. So again, are there apostles today? <laughs> no apostles today. So if you're driving by a church, hopefully you guys aren't looking for a church, but you know, some point in the future and you see apostle so-and-so here, <laughs> just keep, keep driving. There was a man in Bricktown several years ago. I saw him about three times within like a six-month period. And that was, that was his only issue, <laughs> that, he ever, that he was an apostle. That he, was, he was an apostle. He had seen the resurrected Christ, and that's, that's the only beef he had with me, that he was an apostle. And he just didn't like it that I didn't believe him. So he'd come back the next time. So yeah, you, you meet a lot of interesting characters, but there are no apostles today. So the phrase in verse 1, to those who uh, reside as aliens, uh, your version may say strangers, pilgrims, exiles, sojourners, the idea, guys, is a temporary residence. A temporary residence away from one's homeland. That's the simple meaning of the phrase. You know, so, so maybe you've been, you've visited somewhere, right? Maybe it's out of the country or even just out of the state. And it may even be a place that you enjoy, but what is it not? It's not home. It's just there's no place like home, the idea, the movie. And so then the word, uh, the word, uh, the dispersion, my, my, my version says scattered. It's a term that was used by the Greek-speaking Jews to refer to the Jewish people, right, that were dispersed, meaning scattered throughout the nations, dispersed from their homeland that we see when God dispersed them. Um, but, but here in 1 Peter, in this text here, and in James chapter 1, verse 1, the scattered refers to Christians, okay? That's what we're dealing with here. It's not referring to Jews, it's referring to Christians that are, that, are, that are made up of Jew and Gentile. So it's not just Jewish Christians. These are talking about Christians who have been, who have been scattered. They've been scattered throughout different regions of this part of the world and living away from their, not a certain geographical area, but away from their heavenly homeland. This is the idea of what this first verse is talking about. And if we think about it in that light, even Abraham knew this. Even Abraham knew with the revelation that God had given him. Listen to Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. It says, By faith, when he was called, Abraham, he obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive uh, for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So we can see even Abraham in his day, even being in the promised land, he was looking for something greater. He was an alien in this land. And that's what the Bible calls us, aliens. Strangers, uh, exiles, sojourners. So, beloved, these readers, these Christians were scattered, it says in, um, 
in, in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, in what today is called Asia Minor, mostly modern Turkey. All right? So that's really just by way of, by way of introduction, by way of a little bit of background. Now we're going to look at the text. We're going to, uh, I've, got it, I've got it broken up in three points today. And so the first one, I really have got it phrased as a question, I think, just because I, I, just want to, you know, I just want the Word of God to speak to your heart right now by, by way of self-examination for all of us, okay? And so point number one that we see in verse one, I just got it phrased as, where is your home? Where is your home, all right? That's what we see in verse one, these Christians who are, they're aliens in this world. They're, they're, they're uh, pilgrims in this world. They're passing through. So we got to ask ourselves, guys, to engage with the Word of God, allow the Word of God to penetrate our hearts. Where is your home? Okay? Are you permanently planted? Are you permanently attached to this world? See, I'm asking you. I've got to ask myself the same question. Because it's easy for us to read these things. Oh, you see how these Christians are aliens in the world? And we might even say that about ourselves. But is it really true? When we look into our hearts. And there's many different ways we could, we could look at this, guys. Many different ways that we could examine our lives just to see, you know, do we, cons- do we truly consider this world as something that we're just passing through? Or have we, you know, I like, I like the way when it was talking about Abraham that, that he was dwelling in tents. You know, just let that be a picture. Just a picture of this is, we're not putting our stakes down deep here. We're not building a foundation. This is not our permanent home. We're aliens, and we're just putting these temporary stakes in the ground with our tents that we did last week, right? It's temporary. So one way we could ask this, guys, is how do you spend your money? That's a, that's a very practical way to engage your heart. It really is. Jesus spoke about money much in the Bible. You guys realize that? He spoke about money more than he did heaven, I believe, because it's such a practical area of our life. You know, you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, and I remember uh, specifically Jeff preached that passage on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six twenty one. Very simple statement, like very short, simple statement, like many of Christ's were, but very, very powerful. Remember when he said, "For where your treasure is, there you, will your heart be also." You know, it's just a way of the Lord telling us that the way we spend our money, guys, reveals a lot about what's inside of us. So I want you to do that in your life, in your heart. This is not something you need to come tell me. Look at how you spend your money and, and, and where your heart is at in it. Is your heart committed to, to, uh, to this world more than it is to the kingdom of God? Do you, do you find yourself joyfully, like the Scripture says, cheerfully investing in the kingdom of God? Now we can really examine our hearts to those type of things. Listen to, listen to uh, Philippians 3.20. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Eagerly wait. Let me ask you a question. Do you not just know about His coming, okay? not just think about it, but do you eagerly await the coming of Jesus Christ? Does it excite you? I could even ask it like this. 
Again, not in a morbid way, right? But do you sometimes eagerly just, you just think about heaven? Not that you're looking for your death wish. But do you eagerly await Christ? Whether He comes here or you go there. That says a lot, guys, about where our focus is at. Or, is your mindset that, I mean, deep down, maybe you, maybe you wouldn't admit it to somebody else, but do you think, no, because I think that would interrupt my plans that I have in this world. These are just kind of questions we can ask to see if, if we're truly living as aliens, if we truly view our life here as temporary. Yes, we have responsibilities we've got to take care of, right? We, we have to do things, but just remember, guys, that's how the Scriptures identify us, as aliens and strangers to this world. And so as aliens, guys, so as aliens, as sojourners, are we to exclude ourselves from the rest of society like monks? No? Okay, good. I see some heads shaking. No, so that doesn't mean we're supposed to, uh, well, you know, we're not of this world. We're aliens in this world, so let's all gather up. Let's all, you know, we've got the truth and the heck with everybody else. That's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what it means to be an, an alien, a stranger in this world. That's not what it means at all. Look, we're going to look at this from a couple different angles and get some balance to this. Okay, You've got to have balance when you start talking about these things. Uh, flip over to Revelation 18 real quickly. And look at a couple scriptures, tie a couple things together, and get a healthy balance of what this means to be a to be an alien and a stranger in this world, and what it doesn't mean. Revelation eighteen three and four, <clears throat> talking about Babylon. Okay, says this: For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Listen to that. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Again, Babylon really just, really just representing, really just this evil world system. Okay, No matter what, no matter what time period you live, it's just a... It's a picture of this evil, antichrist world system and, and what it represents, even in that verse, the, just the sensuality, the depravity, the sensuality of this world. We're commanded to come out of it. It's like if you read chapter 1 in the, in the Pilgrim's Progress, it's really similar. It's like Christians being commanded from evangelists, right, being warned to flee from the city of destruction. You see, God's going to destroy this present evil world. He's going to destroy, whether, whether you call it the city of destruction, Babylon. These, this present world is going to be destroyed, guys. I'm not even talking about, and I'm not even talking about necessarily in a physical sense. You know what I mean. Judgment's coming. And so God calls us out of this world. We are commanded to come out of Babylon to come out of the city of destruction, to flee from the wrath, like evangelists told um, Christian. I think we can understand it even a little better when we think about 1 John 2, 15-17. What does the Scripture say? 
Right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. And so we think, well, what is he talking about? Well, it says, it says all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then in verse 17, it says, and all these things uh, will perish, will fade away, and all of its lust. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So you see, it's the same kind of language. This world is going to fade away. This world is going to perish. And so, again, we can see that we are to be in the world, right? We're to be in the world. We are in the world. If you're alive here today, you're in the world. But we're not to be of the world. Jesus even says that in John 17, 6, part of his high priestly prayer when he's praying for us. He's praying for his people. And he said that they are not of the world, Father, just as I am not of the world. Okay, so we're not of the world, but we're in the world. And so ask yourself this, guys. That's real easy to say, but are you in the world or are you of the world? Again, all of us are in the world, but are you of the world? When you just think about your life. We are to be, again, God saves us and he leaves us in this world, right? And he doesn't call us to, to, to be monks. But he calls us, what did he call us in Matthew 5? To be salt and light, right? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. But we're to be salt and light. If you guys remember back to that, the salt just really representing our life, our influence, our godly living that helps preserve the culture. But, and then the light really representing the Word of God. So it's really a picture of our life and message. That's what we're to be in this world. As we are aliens. As we are temporarily going through this foreign homeland on the way to the celestial city, we are to be witnesses for our, for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with our message and with our very lives. And then in John seventeen fifteen, the same the same high priestly prayer, Jesus says this, he says, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So you see, it's not God's will. It's not the will of, uh, of the Father, of the, of the triune God to take us out of the world, but, to, but he will protect us. Guys, he will protect us. Does the Father answer the Son's prayers? Absolutely. And he prayed for us. If you want to know how God, Jesus is interceding for us, just read John 17 and find comfort in that. And He is presently interceding for us. And so, beloved, if we are truly Christ's sheep, okay? If we're truly Christ's sheep, then our desire should be not to love the things of this world. Our, our desire should not to be of this world. Which, you know, it calls Babylon. Or this evil world system, this evil world age, city of destruction, however you want to phrase it. We should not love the things in the world that are going to perish. This world system is going to perish. But what should we do? We are to love the people of this world. We are to love the people of this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're to love them with the gospel. We're to love them with the truth. It's the only hope they have. That's why evangelists told Christian, 
Read this. This whole place is going to be judged. Flee from the wrath that's to come. And what, what do we see in chapter 1? Christians starts becoming concerned. So that, that's what we pray for people to become concerned. So we love people with the Gospel. Why? So that they don't perish along with Babylon. Along with the city of destruction. We don't want the people to perish, right? And so be encouraged, beloved, that Christ is with us. He is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is interceding for us presently, no matter what persecution might come. Okay? So that's the first thing we see. That we are in this world. We are not of this world. This, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, this world is not our home. And I know that's... I'm preaching to the choir, but we need to be reminded of these things. This world is not our home. So don't plant your stakes too deep in this, in this world, okay? That will eliminate a lot of worry as well in our lives. So the second thing we see, point number two, is uh, in verse two, we see chosen by God. Your version may say elect, but um, mine says chosen by God. And, and under this one, we'll have three subpoints. So, um, so that's what we see in uh, in. in, 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 in some of your, uh, I can't remember guys, but in some of your Bibles, you'll have the word elect really towards earlier in the verse. But the whole idea is that we as aliens are God's elect. And that word elect means God's chosen. Okay, It's not a complicated thing. It's God's chosen. I'm going to read over in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verses 4 through 6 to help us out just a little bit. So point number two, chosen by God, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, Paul says to the Ephesians, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, that's really important, guys, for our next subpoint. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on bestowed on us in the beloved so we see that this this choosing guys it's it's unconditional we see that we see that it was done in love we see that it was done before the foundation of the world and in verse 5 in, in Ephesians 1:5 according to the kind intention of His will. If you want to know why God chose you, it's according to the kind intention of His will. He chose you because He chose to. Because of His grace. Because He's kind. And so the first subpoint we see is that it's according to the foreknowledge of God. Okay? It's important to understand what this means. It says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So this is not just God knowing information, right? God knows everything. God is aware of everything. He is um, omniscient. He knows everything. So it's not just God knowing information that certain people would choose Him, right? You guys have all heard it. It's not God looking down through the corridors of time and saying, well, He'll, he'll choose me, so based on that I choose Him. That's not what the word means. It, it doesn't mean that... Um, 
Or it doesn't mean that Peter's readers, or, or that God, it doesn't mean that God knows just information that Peter's readers would be chosen to be aliens. None of that stuff is what the word means. But rather it has the, this word foreknowledge has the meaning of, of his knowing people with an intimate, fatherly love. It's, a, it's an intimate affection that God sets upon a person. Again, according to His kind, sovereign will. It, it, it really gets, in Ephesians 1.4, it's, it's the whole idea of being predestined, but being predestined in love. That's what the word, the meaning it has behind it. To, to foreknow, to know. It's the same kind of language of, of Adam knowing Eve. It's just an intimate Knowledge is what the word means. Uh, this, this phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God, it, it, it means according to God's fatherly care before the world was made. In other words, He sets His love, guys. He set His love on you sitting here today. If you're in Christ. He set His love on you. His covenantal affection on you before the foundation of the world. He set His love upon you in advance, foreordaining that you would belong to Him. Guys, that should humble us. How in the world could anybody be, become prideful about that? It should bring us to our knees. Let me give you an illustration. I've wanted to give this illustration, and, and Cody's not in the room. I just told him I was going to give this illustration. So I've, I've been wanting to give this illustration. Oh, there he is. He is back there. <laughs> uh, for years, <laughs> I've told my wife. So we used to have a little dog named Lady. Just a precious little dog. I, I went and I adopted her at the pound in Dell City when she was two years old. We had her until she was 16 years old. She was... She was half beagle, half um, wiener dog, little black dog. She was all black with some white spots. By the time she died, though, she was all gray. But this dog, Jamie can testify, probably Kay, <laughs> Trish, Cody, this dog would follow me everywhere. It didn't matter whether I was outside. Sometimes we kept her outside. Sometimes we kept her inside. We'd be watching TV in the living room. And I would get up just intentionally and walk to the kitchen just to watch her. She would jump out of the little seat and you could hear her little feet. And she would just sit there and I'd get me something and I'd come back. She'd lay down and I'd do it again just to watch her. She did that her whole life. She followed me. And so I always, I always gave the illustration probably a hundred times. She knows I chose her. And I did choose her. And so, obviously, guys, illustrations, right? They're illustrations. They fall short. But this is how I, uh, I had the boys when they were young. We were at the pound to get a little dog. We were there for over an hour. I walked down this hall and down this hall. Yeah, maybe I want that dog. Maybe I want that one. But they were all so loud and hyper. And there was this one last little hallway that we had just missed. So I walked down this hall, walked by these cages, you know, thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe. And there's this little dog. Just sitting there looking at me like this. So calm. And I was like, that's the dog I want. Now, I chose her based on that she was so sweet. 
That's not how God chooses, right? It's not because we're good and, and lovable. But the idea was, is I did choose her. I adopted her. And I don't know if that played into that dog, but she followed me and not other people. She knew that I was her master and she loved me and she followed me. Are you getting the picture, guys? Christ is our master. Our heavenly father chose us before the foundation of the world. And you can fight against that doctrine all you want. But let it just humble you and cause you to worship him and follow him. Amen. It's a beautiful doctrine, guys. And that dog, I'm convinced, loved me because I rescued her. I chose her. And if she didn't really know that, it sure appeared that way. So it's a good illustration. I finally got to use it. <laughs> and so, uh, so sub-point number one was what we see, that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The second thing we see under that we are chosen is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It says in, uh, in the NAS, it says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. <clears throat> I think it'll say either by or in the sanctifying work of the Spirit or through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So what we see, God's foreknowledge was past, right? In eternity past, before the, before the creation is when that took place. But this sanctifying work of the Spirit is present. It's present. The sanctifying is now. And it has really two elements to it, right? Being sanctified, it just means being set apart. What are we set apart from? Sin. We are set apart from sin at the moment of conversion, right? God, through the, through the regenerating work of the Spirit and through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we are set apart from sin at conversion. And then our sanctification is continued, which is happening now, right? We're being sanctified, We're being made into the image of Jesus Christ very slowly, I might add. Right? It's not a uh, it's not a sprint to the finish line. You know the whole doctrine that once you're saved, you're perfect. There's no sin. They they just skip this step. It's amazing. They skip it. It's like it's all over the Bible. We're being sanctified. So we're being sanctified by the Spirit. Uh, Second Thessalonians two thirteen. Paul says very very similar language. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, talking to the Thessalonian believers, uh, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So again, we see the Scriptures consistently saying the same thing. And so question... Leading into our third subpoint, guys, by the way of a question. Why are God's elect set apart from sin at the time of conversion by the Holy Spirit? I'm going to read that again. Why are God's elect set apart from sin at the time of conversion by the Holy Spirit? We see it in the very next phrase, our third subpoint. To obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. So to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. Spend a moment with that. Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 24. I'm going to look at that real quickly. Not going to stay here long, but do want to make a point on this. So this phrase, 
to obey Jesus Christ, be sprinkled with His blood. First of all, true salvation produces obedience. Amen? True salvation is caused by your obedience. Yea or nay? Nay. <laughs> but true salvation does produce obedience. Right? We see that in the Scriptures. Um, I mean, what does Jesus say? You know, if, if, if you love me, you'll obey me. These type, this type of language. That obedience is not cause of our salvation, but it is a result. By giving a new heart, by being given a new heart, having a new life in Christ, our life begins, the direction of our life begins to change, and we start obeying God's word out of love for Him. I mean, what is a Christian, right? What is a Christian? It's someone who loves Jesus Christ. That's a simple definition of what a Christian is. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Keith Green said many years ago, defining a Christian, he said, a Christian is someone who is bananas for Jesus. Are you bananas for Jesus? We're probably not as bananas for Jesus as we should be, but that's the idea, guys. It's somebody who loves Christ. And that's going to be reflected in our life. And so uh, this phrase, sprinkled with blood, uh, Peter is more than likely, I would say definitely referring back to the confirmation of the covenant that God made with Israel. We can see it in Exodus 24. I'm just going to read this. You'll see some of the language here, especially towards verses 7 and 8, and then make a few comments on it, a quote from John MacArthur. It'll help us in our understanding of what he's meaning by here and just give us an appreciation of what he's saying and help us to see Christ as well. So Exodus 24, 3 through 8. Uh, Moses had been with God. He had given him the, uh, the word of God beginning in verse 3. Exodus 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all of the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men, or he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Uh, John MacArthur says in his commentary, just to... uh, He says, to recapitulate the old, this Old Testament analogy, the blood sprinkled on God's altar symbolized his commitment to forgiveness. Fully realized, obviously, in the sacrificial death of Christ. And the blood sprinkled on the people symbolized their intention to obey God's law. More fully realized when Christians walk in the Spirit and obey the Word. So I believe that's where Peter's uh, reaching back to with this, this whole idea of being sprinkled with the blood. Listen, uh, I turned turn from it too quickly. Listen in verse 8, guys, the language. In Exodus 24, 8. 
When Moses says, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. And you think about Jesus' words, guys. When He's with His disciples the night He instituted the Lord's Supper, He says this, the same language, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when we think about, back to Hebrew, or back to Peter, when we think about the sprinkling of the blood here in this verse 2, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. To be sprinkled with His blood, with the blood of Jesus Christ, guys, is to be in covenant relationship with Him. That's what this is referring to. It's a gracious reminder that Peter has given us that, that He has forgiven us for all of our sins, first of all. He has forgiven us because we are in covenant relationship with Him. Why? Because our sins were placed on Him. And He paid the penalty that our sins deserved as He shed His precious blood. That, that's anytime, we, anytime we see the blood of Jesus Christ, guys, it's a reminder, it's a picture to us of what He did for us. This covenant, this new covenant that we are, that we are in covenant with Christ, that's what we remember when we come to the Lord's table. This sprinkling of blood also signifies that we are not our own. Amen? We're not our own. We have been bought by a price, right? We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're not our own. We've been bought with a Christ. And now we have submitted to Him as, as Lord and Master. And so, beloved, what do we see in this verse, guys? That, that according to the, the foreknowledge, that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. What do we see lastly here before we move on to our last and final point? We see our triune God. You not see it just bouncing off the page. That's the first thing I saw when I read this text. Wow, look at the Trinity right there. All active in our salvation. So you know what this verse tells us, guys? That salvation is of the Lord. Amen? It's of the Lord from beginning to end. From the Father choosing us by His grace, setting His love upon us, through the Holy Spirit coming and regenerating our hearts and sanctifying us to the Son coming and purchasing us and sprinkling us, sprinkling us with His blood as our, as our just a reminder of, the, of our, the covenant relationship that He has with us. And that, and that now as a result of all this, as a result of all of His grace, like Jeff was telling us last night, this salvation is of the Lord. It is by grace. And then as a result of it, now that we obey Christ, really what, really what sets us apart or, or marks us in the eyes of others that we are His is that we love Him and that we follow Him and that we obey Him. And we see it from, from eternity past down to our very lives. Here in verse 2, that we are saved, like Jonah said, that salvation is of the Lord. 
He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's so clear, guys, that nothing we do contributes to our salvation. Amen? And so lastly, guys, and in conclusion, uh, point number three is just grace and peace to you. Guys, grace and peace to you and to me. And we see this at the very end of verse 2. Peter says, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. I mean, we can't forget about that part, right? May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. We have to remind ourselves who this is that's writing this letter. This was Peter, right? Peter. Who, as we'll see, he understands and knows all about grace. All about God's grace and peace. First, we need, to, we need to think about Peter, that he was probably the leader and the spokesman of the twelve. We can see that, right? He's always out front. We think about his confession in Matthew 16, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we see Peter being out in front. We see Peter being probably the spokesman, probably the leader. But then we see Peter in some other portions of Scripture in that same chapter in Matthew 16, just a few verses later, he dared, he had the audacity to rebuke Jesus for going to the cross. Told him, no, 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 you're not going to go to the cross. What did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. We see in Mark 14, 31, that he made very rash vows, did he not? What did he say? Even even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, now ultimately, we know Peter did die for him. But we see these vows he's making. And then we see in John 18, obviously he failed to keep those vows, didn't he? When we see him denying his Lord three times. But the point, guys, for us in this text is that despite his failures, Jesus Christ, his Lord, restored him. Did he not? He restored him. You know, when we think about the name that he gave Simon, Peter, the rock, and and I think many commentators agreed on this point, that it was, you know, that rock, that that name that he gave him, really you see it maybe being being fulfilled when, when, when Christ restored him. And, and that Peter was used in such a great way as, as really God establishing maybe the, you know, the foundation of the early church. He used Peter in a mighty way. And we see his restoration. And we think of, uh, we can see it in John 21. I'm not, you don't have to turn there, but in John 21 when he was talking to Peter, in your memory he said, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. What did he say? Tend to my lambs. Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times. And he kept saying, feed my sheep. This is the same one who denied him. And we see Christ restoring this man. Acts 2, verses 22 through 24, we see another picture of this, of Peter being restored. Acts 2, verses 22 through 24. Day of Pentecost, 
Peter boldly preaching to the same people who had Christ crucified. This is the same man who denied Him in front of a young girl. And now we see Peter saying this in Acts 2, 22-3. I'm in the wrong chapter. I thought that looks weird. Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised Him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held by its power. God began adding to the church through Peter's preaching. We see God adding hundreds and thousands through the preaching of this man who who we see stick his foot in his mouth so many times. We see deny his Lord. Now we see Him boldly preaching in Acts 2. And now in 1 Peter... The text we're in today, what do we see Him doing? We see Him obeying Christ's commands in John 21. What's He doing now? He's feeding the sheep. He's feeding us. He was feeding these these Christians who were scattered all over this area in the Roman Empire. They were scattered. And now what's He doing? He's feeding Christ's sheep. And so we see here in in verse 2 that Peter opens this letter right here, this text we're looking at with grace. And if you look in chapter 5, verse 12, he closes it with grace. This man understood the grace of God. He had an experiential knowledge of this grace that that he's exhorting us to. When you think about what he went through, Peter knows about the grace of God. Peter knows what it's like to feel like a failure. How about you today? Do you need His grace today? Do you need His grace and His peace today? I'm not talking about a salvific way. I'm talking about to the people of God in your life. Do you ever feel like a failure? I do. Peter did. What did we see Peter do when he did deny the Lord? Did we see him go hang himself? No, we've seen him repent. And Jesus began to restore him and use him mightily. So if you're here today and you feel like a failure, understand this, guys. Peter was a man just like you and I. Just like Elijah, the Scripture says. He had a nature just like ours. These men were no different, guys. These men, these women in the Scriptures that God used, they're no different than we are. That's what we need to learn from this text. That's why God's Word tells us about their failures. Because we're not any different. We should never look at the text and the Word of God and and say, man, how could these people do these things? Because if we do, we're being a hypocrite. We do the same thing. Maybe you feel like you've blown it here today. Maybe you feel like you've blown it with your kids. Maybe your kids are young. Maybe some of them are old. Maybe you feel like you've blown it. I've felt that way before. 
Children, maybe you feel like you've disappointed mom and dad in a way that God could never forgive you. Maybe you feel like you've blown your witness for Christ. Maybe with your family, with, with your co-workers. Maybe by something you said. Maybe by something you did. Maybe by something you failed to say or failed to do. You feel, you feel like you've blown it. You feel like you're a failure. You feel like God can't use you. I wonder if Peter ever felt that way. What about a relationship with a friend? A family member? Co-worker? Maybe somebody in this church who you feel like maybe you've, you've blown it with. Oh, there's so many things in life, guys, that we, we fall. We do. We fall. Peter, Peter fell, but what do we see? Do we see Jesus sweeping him to the side and saying, I'm done with you? No. We see Christ being restored. And now He's feeding His sheep just like the Lord had commanded Him to. So beloved, understand this. That Peter, getting back to his office as an apostle, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, he has written these words for us today. For those believers in that day and for us. When we read these words, may grace and peace be yours. Be yours. Beloved, I'm talking to you today. May God's grace, may God's peace be yours in the fullest measure. He had to add that, didn't he? In the fullest measure. Do you realize there's not a, there, there is not a end of the supply of the grace of God to the child of God? You can't outsend the grace of God. It's that picture of being planted by streams of water. It's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a never-ending supply of God's of God's riches, of God's power for us to live a godly life, and of God's forgiveness and grace. And so I would just encourage you today, beloved, that if you feel like you have failed the Lord, what do we do? What do we do, guys? What's the promise? We go to Him. We go to Him. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, that verse really has the idea. It really has the idea that the, that the true believer will be going and will be confessing and that forgiveness and that cleansing and that restoration will be continual. It's a fountain of grace. The blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin is yours, guys. It's yours. The grace of God is yours. The forgiveness of God is yours. So don't, don't let the enemy beat you up. Okay, go to him. Put the past behind you and just continue to pursue Him and pursue His grace. Rest. Rest in His grace. Rest in His peace. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, we just thank You, Father, that, uh, that You love us so much as Your children, Lord. We thank You for, God, Your grace that You have freely given us in Christ. And we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the many, many, many examples that we see in Scripture. Men like Peter, Lord, who loved you, God, but who, because they were still in this world, Lord, that had a, had a uh, just the, the indwelling sin, the flesh that they had to battle with just like we do, Lord. 
So, Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word today that reminds us, God, that these men were no different than we are. That we are nothing but dust, God, and and sometimes we just need to be reminded of that, Lord. But that you love us, that you set your love upon us before you created the world, and you sent your Son. You sealed us by your Spirit. You gave us a new heart and new life. You purchased us and sprinkled us with the blood of Christ. And we just thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you loved us before we ever loved you. And Father, as we sang about earlier, Lord Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of our lives. You are, you are worthy of our obedience that Peter speaks about in this passage, Lord. And, and I just pray, God, for these dear people here today, Lord, God, whom I love and whom I know that you love um, such an infinite way, Lord. I, I just pray, God, that they would, that they would find rest and comfort in your grace, God, that they would come before your throne, that they would understand that you're not done with them, you're not done with us because we fail you, Lord, but that you want us to come to you, you want us to receive your grace, to walk in your grace and to extend that grace to others, to take that, that bread of life, to take that, that um, as a spiritual beggar's Lord, that bread that we have found and, and to offer it to others who need it so desperately bad, Lord. So I just pray, God, that, that we would not listen to the lies of the enemy today, Lord, that we would not listen to his condemning accusations that come against us, Father, but that we would remember who we are in Christ, that we are secure in him, that we have been made whole in him, that we have been made complete in him, that we are, that we are perfectly righteous before God, before our Father today, because of Christ and his perfect life that he lived. And so, Lord, just please comfort your people today with these truths, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.